Well, hey, I want to wish you all a happy Father's Day to all my dads in the house, but I know that being a father isn't just in the physical sense. Uh, man, for me growing up, there were so many men that came into my life and discipled me and mentored me in the ways of Jesus. And so uh, you may not have physical children in this room, but you may be a father that has spiritual children in this room. And so if that is you, if you fall into that category, I want to thank you for taking the call of Jesus seriously, taking the call of discipleship seriously, that just because you didn't have kids of your own, that you, you didn't give up, but that you found other young men that needed the hope of a father, and you spoke that into their lives. You spoke the truth of Jesus into their lives. So if that's you, thank you this morning. I'm going to be speaking primarily to our dads in here this morning, uh, physically, spiritually, um, Today we are going over a message called The Heart of Absalom. We are in our third and final week in our series called The Three Kings, and this week we are in the life and examining the heart of King Absalom, and I throw some air quotes on that very lightly because Absalom took kingship for himself. And really what we see in the heart of Absalom is a heart that was constantly vying for power based off of some things that happened in his life a little bit early in his origin story that took place because of his father, King David. So just some quick facts about King Absalom before we dive in here. Absalom was the third son of King David. And for most of his life, he was outwardly compliant, but he was inwardly rebellious. And he rebelled against the beloved king. Now, Absalom was a brother of Amnon, of Kaliab, of Solomon, of Tamar, his sister, and he had many other siblings. Those are just the more notable ones. But it's in the early years of King Absalom's life where we start to see these seeds of a rebellious heart really sown into who he is. You see, Absalom, he had, he had the looks, man. And we talked about King Saul. Jacob started off this whole series talking about the handsome looks of King Saul, but it says something in the Bible that it doesn't say about King Saul and that Absalom did not have a single blemish about his appearance. I mean, this, good, this guy was good looking. He was the most handsome man in all of Israel. And part of that handsomeness was undoubtedly his long, luscious locks. I'm only saying it because the Bible's saying it, all right? I'm not like, I don't got a man crush on this guy, okay? Jealous much? Absolutely, but no man crush. This guy only cut his hair once a year, and the reason he cut his hair is because it got to be about five pounds in weight. So that dude is just, you know, whiplash all over the place. Somebody calls his name, what? Knocks the person out next to him. But he wasn't the only one with good looks. You see, he had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and his brother, Abnon, fell in love with Tamar. And then one day, he decided to take that love into his own hands. And so what does he do? Very brokenly, he puts a scheme together, and he goes before King David, and he says, I'm sick. And the only thing that's going to make me better is if Tamar comes here, and she takes care of me. And so he fakes his sickness. Tamar comes. She takes care of him. And in this moment, Abnon professes his love to Tamar. And like I said, a sick, broken love. You guys think the Bible is boring? No way. You're boring if you think the Bible's boring. This, this makes Game of Thrones look like Pee Wee League. 
falls in love with his sister, and then his sister says, this isn't okay. This isn't right in the sight of the Lord. Now, she was a pure young woman. She had not been with any man previously, and so what does Adam do? He imposes and he forces his will on Tamar. And then Absalom, being her brother, wants to stick up for her. He wants justice to be done, and he waits for justice, and he waits for justice, and he takes Tamar into his care, and she lives with him, and she is under his wing now, and he looks to King David over and over every day. Dad, is today the day that you're going to make Abner pay for what he did to my sister? And every day that passes is another day that justice isn't served. And it's not like he just waited one day. It's not like he just waited a week or a month or two months. I think even that is way too long. But Absalom waited two years for King David to do something to Abner for taking the purity of his sister, whom he loved. David does nothing. And so what does Absalom do? Absalom is a little crafty, and those seeds have been planted deep down inside of him because of David's passivity. And so he plots against his brother. And he says, you know what sounds like a good time? Let's get all the king's sons together, all of King David's sons, and let's have a sheep shearing party. That doesn't sound fun to me, but it must have sounded great to them. And it was at this party that he sees his plan into execution, and the life of Abner is taken. And from there, Absalom is in fear, and he flees the scene. And it says in 2 Samuel 13, 37, and David mourned for his son day after day. So even in David's passivity and his inability to act for whatever reason. In Absalom's sin, Absalom goes on the run. And even though Absalom killed David's other son, King David misses his son, Absalom. And then we see the fruit of a rebellious heart. We see that King David allows Absalom to return home. And it's at this point where Absalom works his way up into David's court. He starts being his counselor. He starts to take, you know, any of the problems in the kingdom kind of on his plate to help his dad out. And so he starts to win the love and the affection and the influence of these people. He starts to get a little power hungry. He gets just a taste of it. And he thinks, you know what? I don't agree with the things that my dad's doing. I don't agree with the way he's running things. I don't necessarily like his leadership. So what does Absalom do? Well, he starts positioning himself for a power grab. He undermines David's authority, and then he starts to speak against him to others. It starts with a whisper here and there. Somebody might say something bad about his dad instead of saying, no, that's the king. We don't talk about him. Instead, what Absalom would say, well, you know, you're right. And then maybe the next time somebody else says something, he said, you know, you are right, and you know what I would do different. And he starts to set himself up, and these whispers become murmurs. And these murmurs become conversations behind closed doors, and they become conversations out in the street. And more and more and more, Absalom starts to build his following until one day where Absalom comes up with another plan. He tells his father he's going to go back to his hometown of Hebron, and he's going to make a sacrifice. What Absalom is really going to do is set up his own kingdom, to set up shop, to set up fort against his father. And while he's there, he's going to gather an army and... As he gathers his army, he sends messengers out into all of the kingdom to say that when you hear the trumpet sound, it's at that point you declare King Absalom is king. Absalom is now king over all of Israel. And so he goes to war 
with his dad. And out of fear, David and all of his followers, once again, David is off the throne, and he is in the fields, and they go to battle. Absalom consults counsel on how to defeat David. David, in this moment, prays, God, I pray that whatever counsel Absalom receives is folly, and that it will be his end, and that your beloved, your chosen king, will not be laid to waste on this day. And so they go to battle. They go to battle in the forest of Ephraim. On that day of battle, 20,000 men fall. More men fell to the forest than they did by the sword. That's some Lord of the Rings type stuff right there. What's going on in this forest? I think those trees might be alive. You know what I'm saying? At the end of the day, David and his army are victorious. And then we see the consequence of a rebellious heart. We see the consequence of a rebellion. And for Absalom, the consequence of rebellion is death. You see, Absalom, things start going south, and he decides, I'm going to take off on this donkey. And as he is en route, remember that long, beautiful Pantene Pro-V hair that young man had? It gets strangled and tangled up in the branches, the limbs, the twigs of an oak tree. And as his hair catches, the donkey keeps going. <laughs> it says, this is the Bible, it's so poetic, that he was stranded between heaven and earth. Yes, he was. And as he is dismounted, Joab comes upon the scene. Now, Absalom was a little punk to Joab back in the day. He called for his attention. Joab didn't go as Absalom beckoned him. So Absalom said, I'll get your attention. I'm going to set your field on fire. Well, that got Joab's attention. Joab was a mighty warrior. He was one of David's generals. And before this battle, David said, you don't touch my son. If you see him on the field of battle, you don't touch him. And what does Joab do? He says, I remember that field. I remember what you did to me you little twerp. And he says, I'm not going to touch him, but these three spears are going to touch him. And in that moment, Joab throws three spears at the heart of Absalom. And then 10 of Joab's armors, armor bears finish the job. So the consequence of rebellion for Absalom is death. But as we see in family, anytime that our children are hurt, it's not just the consequence of their sin, has befallen to them, it is also to us. And so we have to look at the consequence of this rebellion for David. And the consequence of this rebellion for David is grief. It's grief over a lost son. Despite his son vying for the throne, he misses his son. Despite any wrong Absalom ever did against David, even in trying to take his life, trying to defeat his army, David still loved his son. David still misses his son. What we see in this is how deep the Father's love is for us. Remember, David is just a forerunner to Jesus. He is just a picture of the coming Messiah, a very imperfect picture. But if we get just a glimpse, just a taste of who Jesus is going to be, and we see the Father's love, despite sin, despite anything that came into the picture, he still loves his boy. And then we see that he has grief over his failings as a father. I think as fathers, as leaders of the household, we, we can feel this too. When our children make a bad decision, when we get a call from the principal. I haven't gotten a call from the principal yet, but I know they're coming, all right? A little sister starts school this year, watch out. And I know my mom got a lot of calls from the principal, so she comes by naturally. Those things hurt. 
When our children make bad choices, they hurt. And so David is grieving. How might have things been different if I was a better, better father? How might things have been different if I was there, if I was present? How might things have been different for my family, but how might things have been different for my nation? Maybe if I had acted, Absalom would have been the next great king. Maybe it wouldn't have had to fall into Solomon. Maybe Solomon would have been after Absalom. We don't know. But God's plan prevails. So I've got a few questions for us as we focus this morning on the story of King Absalom and how it kind of intertwines into the story of King David. And I want us to look at this relationship of father and son and son to father. But the first thing I want us to focus on is, as we've focused on throughout this entire series is whose heart do we possess? You have the heart of Saul, of pride and greed and ego. You have the heart of David, which in brokenness of isolation and loneliness and being betrayed, God shaped him and formed him into a man that was after his own heart. And now we have Absalom, who has a heart devised for power, who is very much a flip-flop mirror image of Saul. Saul got jealous of David. Absalom just disapproved of David and said, I'm going to set up my own rule. And so my question for us is, do I possess, do we possess the heart of Absalom? When I disagree with somebody in leadership, do I seek to overthrow their leadership? Do I constantly or consistently or even seldomly undermine the people who are over me? When I feel like I'm slighted, when I feel like my leader is in opposition to me or they offend me, do I try to win people to my side? Do I try to build my case? Do I secretly and or publicly oppose my leaders? Remember, I think with Absalom it started small. Just a whisper here, a murmur there, until it became a conversation, became a normal part of his daily activity to oppose the king in conversation. Finally, do I take power into my own hands? And do I enforce my will and my leadership onto other people? Now in the flesh, that is always going to be the case. In our weak human condition of being fallen, broken people, we will always fall into that. But in the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit that comes to dwell in us, when we put our faith in Jesus, there is another option. So do I possess the heart of Absalom, or do I possess a heart that is changed by God? Ephesians 4, 2-3 says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These are our characteristics. If you would say that you are a follower of Jesus in here today, if you put your faith in him, if you've asked him and trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And so these should be the characteristics of your life. These should be the characteristics of your heart. Humility, gentleness, patience. When leadership is oppressive, when leadership over you really stinks. Remember, leadership over David stunk. Not only did it stink, he tried to kill him over and over and over. What did David do? He let that offense go and he hid in caves until it was his time to lead. And he, it wasn't his time to lead until God appointed him. He was patient. He waited on the Lord. On the opposite hand, Absalom set up shop against God's appointed leadership. Do we have patience? Are we bearing with one another to maintain unity in the spirit and the bond of peace? Look, in your workplace, in your family, in your marriage, in your relationships, power grabbing, 
is always going to be easy. People won't even blame you for it. They see bad leadership, they're not going to look to you to submit to it. They're going to look to you to oppose it. Undermining and usurping power will always be easy. But unity by the Holy Spirit, that is going to be hard. That is going to have to be fought for. That is going to take full reliance on Jesus and the operation of the Holy Spirit within you. That is not something that you can do on your own. But that is what we strive for. So we have to ask our question now, what was a factor of Absalom's rebellious heart? And I think we can trace this all the way back to Tamar, all the way back to Abner. We can trace this all the way back to David's lack of action and his passivity. And can we blame him? I mean, he's a king, right? And a king's got to do what a king's got to do, and a king's plate is full. And you know, I'm sure the king is under a lot of stress. And I'm sure his capacity is just reached. And, and I'm sure he's got people that are just breathing down his neck all day. And I'm sure that pressure is just so much. Who knows? Who knows what the king was up to? What kings have to do, what kings have to do. Or do they? Maybe he could have carved out a little bit more time for his kids. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, we trace it back to that lack of action. We trace it back to that passivity. I think things could have been different for Absalom had David had just been present. So dads, leaders of the household, what is a lack of action? What does passivity look like for us? Let me just be completely transparent in saying... <laughs> This list was not hard to come up with. All I had to do was look at myself. These are daily struggles for me and my household. These are things my wife so graciously and lovingly calls me out on all the time. And I am thankful for that. Happy Father's Day to me. <laughs> I think this looks like self-consumption. I think this looks like being self-consumed. I'm the man of this house. I'm the leader of this house. I'm the most important thing here. You need to bow to me. You need to serve me. You need to make sure my needs are met. I think this looks like being stressed out and overwhelmed because the job is hard, because the boss is breathing down your neck all day, because you have to manage people that are under you, because you just barely have what it takes to get through your day. And so by the time you finally get home, your capacity is absolutely capped. And then if you're a family man, you've got beautiful kids, Somewhere between your knees, your ankle, all the way to probably taller than you. What happens when you get home? Well, now it's their turn. Now they want your attention. Unless they're like 13 or older, and then you're good. <laughs> they stopped wanting your attention a long time ago. Hopefully you gave it to them. And then when they go to bed, now there's your spouse. And your spouse wants your attention. And you know what? They deserve your attention. Let's not let our stress and our overwhelm be their problem. I think this looks like us being checked out. I think it looks like us coming to an end of ourselves during the workday, zoning out on the way home, or maybe you telecommute. You just zoom into everything. And by the time 5 o'clock rolls around, you sit on the couch, you pop open a can of whatever it is that's going to make you feel better, you open your phone, and you scroll, and you scroll, and you scroll, and you scroll. 
pretty soon your kids stop seeing your face, they start to see a phone in front of it. I think this looks like being absent-minded, not being intentional, not being in your kid's life. I think these are the things that we have to watch out for. These are the things that's so easy to fall into. So, dads, let's save some capacity. Let's stop relying on our own strength and our own capacity. And when we get home, let's take 5, 10, 15 minutes. Let's rest. Let's recover. Let's get back in the game. Let's love our kids. Let's give our kids the attention that they need. Let's give our kids the attention they deserve. You know what? If you're a dad of girls, I'll warn you with this. Someday some man's going to come along and he's going to give them attention. If that man gives them more attention than you gave them, then shame on you. Because you were given a responsibility to raise those, those young ladies up in the ways of the Lord. They need a daddy that's going to love them. They need a daddy that's going to care for them. Don't let them find that some other joker. In fact, make that joker's life harder than ever. <laughs> Ain't nobody going to live up to me. And if he gets close, I got a baseball bat with his name on it. We're going to edit that out. <laughs> what does it look like to bring them up in discipline and instruction in the ways of the Lord? I think we have to realize, again, that they need dad's attention. Again, that they don't need our stress to become their mess. I think what this means is we need to dive into their little universes. I've got two girls. I'm diving into different universes all day long, whether I'm Ken and Barbie, whether I'm Bluey's dad or whatever else they've been watching. And that's my, that's on me. That's my responsibility to dive into that world. But when I dive into that world, they're not only receiving love from their dad, they're receiving love from the father. As I've spent time with the Lord and I am loving them, they are establishing an idea of what their relationship, what their connection to their heavenly father should look like. I enter in to their little worlds. I let them see God's love in my actions, and we should let them see God's love in our actions. And then, after they've seen it in my actions, then I lead and I love by my words. And so if you're a dad in this room, don't think I have this figured out. I'm saying these things out of struggle and out of wrestling with it and out of failing over and over and over again. But as we enter into their worlds, as we love them physically with our actions, with our time, with our attention. Let's teach them to pray. Let's model that. Let's let them hear us pray. And let's walk them through how to pray, and then let's let them pray on their own. I think it'll be really, uh, really fun for you to see what your kids pray the first time that they pray. It's always a trip in our house between fiction and nonfiction. I'm just, I think that was heresy. I'm not sure what that was. What Bible are you reading? But hey, we push onward. We teach them to read the Word. We teach them their need for God. But every step of the way, we let them see it in us first. Yes, I think David's failures and his weaknesses left himself and his family open to other consequences. And so we have to also ask our question, how do I keep my failures, how do we keep our failures from becoming our family's downfall? Hey, dads, look, we mess up. We mess up a lot. And I'd be surprised if there's anyone in here who's messed up more than me. I don't know, maybe Jacob. That was an easy, that was a low blow and it was easy, man. I'm, I'm sorry. Dude, second Father's Day, you're killing it, bro. I'm proud of you. 
when we mess up, we've got to own it. We've got to openly acknowledge our downfall, our failure, our weaknesses, and we need to discerningly share that with our family. That doesn't need to be something that just stays between you and your spouse. No, your kids know that you failed. Your kids know that you fail. Your kids know that you have weaknesses, and so own up to it. You know what happens when you own up to it? They will still see you as Superman. They will still see you as the strongest person in the world, even though you've never lifted a weight in your life. They'll still see you as the greatest presence your household has ever seen, if you love them. So open up. Don't hide it from them. And then at that point, repent to them. Repent before God and those who you hurt. And share that with your family. Hey, I did not prioritize this thing. Hey, I did not prioritize you. I can't tell you how many times I've had to apologize to my girls because in the middle of Barbies, in the middle of playing it, you know, this or that, I get a phone call and I got to run out of the room. And when I come back in, I see the look on their faces and I see that they're just a little bit devastated. And I say, you know what, Brooklyn, Mackenzie, daddy messed up right there. See, I didn't prioritize you over this thing. And I needed to, because this was our time to play. This wasn't this person's time. Would you forgive me? I admit it. I repent of it. I ask for forgiveness. We move forward. And then we intentionally work through the consequences of those mistakes, of those failures, of those weaknesses together. See, we are forgiven. We are forgiven in Jesus. And because we're forgiven in Jesus, we forgive other people. But every sin has consequence. And so just because there is forgiveness doesn't mean it means it's wiped away from you for eternity. It means that Jesus took it upon himself on the cross, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to take a lot of effort to win back trust. It doesn't mean it's not going to take a lot of effort to move forward, to build back those bonds where your family can lean in and depend on you. Another question we asked this morning is, how do we respond when our children rebel? Absalom, he divided the kingdom. He undermined and usurped King David. He set up shop in a fort against his father. He challenged him to battle, and then he met his end. And how does David respond? 2 Samuel 18, 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, Absalom, O oh, my son, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son? David's mourning goes on for so long that Joab, one of his generals, comes up to him and he says, David, we just won the battle. And you're mourning over Absalom, our fallen enemy, who opposed you so much that if you keep being a crybaby about this little punk, nobody's going to follow you anymore. And all the sins and all the brokenness of your youth, Everything that's come upon you so far is going to seem like nothing because every man is going to turn their back on you because you think that the fallen enemy is worth more than the man that fought next to you in battle. What does David do? He wipes off the tears. He pulls it together for a short time. He continues to mourn. And after the mourning is over, he forgives. We see Shammai, <clears throat> a defector who defected with King Absalom, comes before David with men of Judah and men of Benjamin, two tribes also defected and went with Absalom, in Second Samuel 24, verses 19 through 20 and 23. And I said to the king, let not the Lord, this is Shammai, and I said to the king, let not the Lord, my Lord, hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day of 
My lord, the king, left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down and meet my lord, the king. And David responds in verse 23, and the king said to Shammai, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. So we see that David responds in mourning and in grieving, but David also responds in forgiveness. And so how do we respond based off of David's response? This means that we grieve, and we grieve before God when our children rebel, when our children run astray, when our children make bad choices. We grieve before God. We take it before God. It should hurt us, but we should also hurt for them because all sin, whether it's your child or someone else's, should break us. And other people's brokenness should break our hearts. And out of our broken hearts, we should intercede for our children. We should go before God in prayer. And then we should go before our children in love and truth. We don't let this offense keep happening. We don't sit by in passivity. We don't sit by in inaction. We don't sit by self-consumed. We don't sit by at full capacity. We don't sit by alienated and strained from our family. You step into the situation, you be the dad you need to be, and you address the sin. Not out of harshness, but out of love and out of truth. What do we do when the rebellious child comes home? Our final question to answer this morning, we see that Absalom never got to come home. No, Absalom was put to death and he was buried. Hopefully, that's not our story. Hopefully that's not the story of our children. So how do we respond when they come back? How do we respond when the rebellious child returns home? Well, in this, we're going to look to God the Father. We're not going to look to David. How does God respond when the rebellious child comes home? We see this in Luke 15, verses 17 through 24. This is just two-thirds of the parable of the prodigal son. We see in Luke 15 that Jesus is telling this story. And the story of the prodigal son is this wealthy man has two sons. And the younger son comes to him one day and he says, Father, I want my inheritance. Which back then meant, hey, Father, you're dead to me. I want all the money that I would get when you die, and I'm going to go spend it now. And so he gets all the money that he was allotted when his father was going to die, and he goes off to what we could call Las Vegas. He spends all the money. Not a good gambler. Doesn't make money. Spends it all on a crazy, rampant, dark, sinful, rebellious lifestyle. And then famine comes over the land, and he finds himself wanting, wanting of resources, wanting of what he once had from his father, wanting of food, wanting of drink. And so he goes to a person in that land, and he asks for a job. He gets a job feeding the pigs. And one day, he realizes, you know what? This pig slop sure does look good. Man, I really want this pig slop. And at that point, he comes to his senses, and that's where we pick up in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive. Again, he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So what happens here? The son returns home. The rebellious child returns home. And with a repentant heart, realizing what he had done. And what does the father do? The father, seeing the son on the horizon, runs to the son. Now, we've discussed this in a few sermons six months ago, and it's hard to remember last week, so we'll cover this again. Men in this time did not get in a hurry. They did not rush. They did not run. To rush, to get in a hurry, to run to somebody meant that you did not have your affairs in order. It was a thing of pride that you walked, and you walked slow, and you walked deliberate. But this man sees the sun on the horizon who told him, you're dead to me. Give me everything you owe me. And what does he do? He runs to him. Now, who is the father in this story? Well, it's a depiction of God our Father. Who is the son in this story? Well, it's a depiction of us, little, silly, broken, rebellious children. You know that there's nowhere else in the Bible that God is ever depicted as being in a rush? The only place God runs to fast is to a sinner that's repented and has come home. That is how our father deals with a rebellious child. But does he just run to him? Does he just embrace him? Does he just give him a kiss on the cheek? No. He puts a robe on his shoulder and the best robe. That robe represents protection. It represents covering. And you know what that's based on? It's based on who the father is. That's not based on anything that the son did or didn't do. It's based on who dad is. He gives him a ring, which restores his authority. It restores his provision. It restores his family credit card and his bank account. And he gives him shoes. You see, he wanted to return home to work for the father because even the servants in his house were taken better care of than he was as a worker in a far-off land. And by the father putting shoes on his feet, he's saying, you are not a servant here. No, you are my boy. You are my son. Welcome home. You are fully restored. At some point in our lives, we've all been the prodigal son. At some point in our lives, through the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and regeneration within us, calling us into relationship with God the Father. Some of us in here have accepted a relationship with Jesus. You know what I found? Accepting a relationship with Jesus and accepting his righteousness, and in turn, him taking my sin based off of his perfect life, his perfect sacrifice, his death on the cross for my sin, and his victory over sin and death on the third day, I found that the road home, home is always short. The son was spotted far off, and the father sees him and he runs to him. And I don't care who you are, I don't care how far away from God you have gotten, you've worked yourself into, I don't care how deep the hole is that you've dug, God is right there, and God is rushing back, and it might seem like the distance is mighty, 
but the speed of our God to get back to you is swift. He can make it up in no time. And so it may look like a long way, but it's a short way. The road back home is always short in Jesus. So how do we deal with the rebellious child? We welcome them back home. We embrace them. We kiss them. We forgive them. And we restore them. Because in our sin, and our transgression against God, the same exact thing was done for us. 